Welcome to Books and Nachos, a podcast for those of us who find excitement in the pages of a good book. At booksandnachos.com, you can find over 100 reviews, from fiction to nonfiction, graphic novels, and more. There's also links to our forums, our Facebook and Twitter pages, and information about our Podbean crowdfunding campaign. At booksandnachos.com, we're here to find you something great to read. Welcome to Books and Nachos, the Venganza Media Podcast about all things in print. This is your host, Stuart in L.A., four years after co-hosting a retrospective of all those James Bond novels written by Ian Fleming, I'm back reporting on another super spy with literary origins. This time, he's a forgetful American assassin who's appeared in over a dozen best-selling books, multiple Matt Damon movies, a TV miniseries, even a video game. I am, of course, talking about everyone's favorite amnesiac, David Webb. Who? You heard me right. David Webb is the main character of The Bourne Identity. And if you thought his name was Jason Bourne, well, you're just as confused as the spy at the center of this first adventure novel. In truth, our protagonist goes by many names. Some call him Kane. Others know him as Delta or Delta One. The author himself refers to the character as the Chameleon. Only a very elite group know him as Jason Bourne, which makes... Jason Bourne come across as a very fragmented personality, a secret agent as much at odds with himself as he is with his enemies. But before I talk any more about Webb or Bourne or whatever you want to call him, let me first say a few words about his creator, Robert Ludlum. Because I want to be clear, it's only the Ludlum trilogy of Jason Bourne stories that I'm covering here at Books and Nachos. Today I begin with introductory novel The Bourne Identity, Next week, I'm reading the 1986 sequel, The Bourne Supremacy, and the week after that, I'll finish up with 1990's The Bourne Ultimatum. And while it's true that there are 10 more novels that further the adventure of Jason Bourne, they were all written by Eric von Lustbader in the decade after Robert Ludlum died. And since my intention with these Books and Nachos podcasts is to define Bourne as his original author conceived him, I don't see any point in looking at how pop culture and other people have reimagined the character. I want to focus with what began on the page. Now, Robert Ludlum hardly needs an introduction. With 27 different novels translated into more than 47 different languages and over 500 million copies in print, the man is easily one of the most famous and financially profitable authors of the 20th century a huge figure in the spy fiction genre. Nevertheless, it may surprise listeners to know, just as it surprised me, that Robert Ludlum has absolutely no personal experience when it comes to crime-fighting, intelligence-gathering, overseeing any kind of espionage work. He spent two years in the Pacific after World War II serving as a Marine, and he had a couple college roommates that enlisted with the CIA. But other than that... Ludlum has lived a life far removed from the spy game he so often wrote about. And that's a stark contrast to the other luminaries of the genre. I mean, Ian Fleming, before he ever wrote a word about 007, was working on top-secret naval projects with codenames like Goldeneye. And John Le Carre spent decades serving in MI6 before he wrote The Spy Who Came In From The Cold and gave the world George Smiley. 
Ludlum's background is in the theater. From the time he was a teenager, he was on the stage. Broadway and traveling productions, plus radio, television, and movie appearances, eventually transitioning to behind the scenes and running a theater company in Pittsburgh during his 30s. I looked up the guy's resume. I've seen a lot of movies throughout history. I wanted to see if there was a performance that folks today might remember him from. But alas, while Ludlum was successful in working steadily, it doesn't appear that he achieved any lasting notoriety as an actor. Uh, He largely paid his bills by doing voiceover work in advertisements. So if you know him from his performances, it's probably for that. By the time Ludlum reaches middle age, he is tired of this hustle. He doesn't want to be an actor anymore, and he's actively seeking a more stable line of work, like writing fiction novels. And that's another thing that makes Ludlum's literary career unique. He has no background in writing prior to publishing his first book. He was never a journalist for a newspaper. He didn't even try his hand at playwriting. He just decided at 44 years of age that he was going to be a writer. And as luck would have it, not only was his first novel, The Scarletti Inheritance, an instantaneous bestseller in 1971, but he kept that momentum going. The man followed it up with 26 more hit novels over the next 30 years until he died in 2001 at the age of 73. That is quite a second act, a second career. That averages out to being about, oh, a 500-page book every 13 months. Try doing that for the rest of your life. Pretty impressive. And while most would agree that Jason Bourne is the author's best-known and most admired creation, he isn't the character that made Ludlum's reputation. Ludlum was already a brand name by the time The Bourne Identity hit bookshelves in February 1980. In fact, his previous novel, The Mattery's Circle, beat out Stephen King's Dead Zone and William Styron's Sophie's Choice to take the number one slot in the New York Times best-selling book list of 1979. It was the biggest book of 1979. So, I think the reason maybe Jason Bourne novels are more famous than other Robert Ludlum novels is due to the fact that they found larger audiences at the movies. Bourne Identity was... A hit twice, actually. First adapted as a highly rated TV miniseries in 1988, starring Richard Chamberlain. And then 13 years later, it was the big screen, big budget star vehicle for Matt Damon that I think most people are familiar with. Those curious to know my thoughts on those films are encouraged to head over to Sister Podcast Now Playing, where co-hosts Arnie Jacob and myself are working our way chronologically through all the Bourne cinematic works, until we reach this new installment, Jason Bourne, which is arriving in theaters at the end of July. But this is Books and Nachos. I stay focused on what was written on the page. I suspect another reason the Bourne identity proved to be such a standout in Ludlum's career is that it gave him an opportunity to write about a subject where he had extensive first-hand knowledge. Okay, the guy may never have been a spy, But he does know one thing. He knows what it feels like to put on a disguise, step into the hard lights, and become a character that audiences are expecting to see. That role-playing techniques that he developed on the stage are exactly the skill set of his main character, David Webb. Born Identity doesn't have to read as some authentic tale of CIA operations. 
it is the story of a man who follows his gut to impersonate a CIA operative in order to stay alive. And that's a conflict that readers really get hooked into from the very first page. David Webb is discovered on a boat off the coast of France, shot five times, falls into stormy waters, and when he's fished out the next day, he can no longer remember who he was, how he got there, that he was a spy, because a bullet grazed his brain and it has left him with permanent memory loss. Now, Webb can still walk and talk and recite his ABCs. This is not like starting with a blank slate, per se. He can do things that newborn babies have to be taught to do. He can even summon, almost like muscle memory, all the specialized training he received during his tour of duty in Vietnam and his three years working in a top-secret CIA program. He is an excellent marksman. He speaks several different languages. He knows the name of every head of state in the modern world. What he doesn't know is how he came by all that knowledge. His personal history is what has been wiped clean. And while he'll have a vision of the past, occasionally bubble up in a dream, or he'll run into a former collaborator and it'll trigger a memory, most of David's life is gone forever. This is not amnesia where he simply needs to, you know, trigger his mind and familiarize himself with things from the past. His identity has been taken from him by that bullet to the brain. It's not going to come back, no matter what he does. He just has to go forward. And that is a foundational loss when you think about it. I mean, the past is a story we tell ourselves every day in order to navigate our lives. I mean, would we even be able to get out of bed in the morning if we couldn't access our memories and were able to pull from previous days to inform the coming day? I mean... How do you function when you can't access your own identity? Well, in the case of born identity, the amnesiac becomes a method actor. His every interaction is now suddenly unscripted performance, though it's a performance in which the actor is beholden to a historical interpretation of himself. Playing Hamlet is no different than playing Jason Bourne because you're required to do your research in order to be convincing to others. The dialect you speak, the clothes you wear, all of it has to sync up with this unremembered former life, or Webb is just going to look inauthentic when he runs into people that knew him previously. Ludlum knows how you do this. He has constructed characters using vague stage directions and brief lines of dialogue throughout his life. He is going to reassemble this broken man and make it a tantalizing game. So after a small-town doctor patches up his wounds and given him a forged passport to travel on, our hero is off to Switzerland, where he's immediately recognized by hotels, concierges, and bank tellers as Jason Bourne. And when he digs further into that name, he discovers that Jason Bourne is an infamous American-born hitman responsible for killing several high-profile people in Asia. And it can't be a coincidence that the very same week that he lost his memory off the coast of Marseille is the same week that a U.S. ambassador was shot and killed there. He realizes pretty quickly that he's probably responsible for that hit too. And with each new clue, with each exhibiting of a deadly behavior trait, 
the amnesiac is closer and closer to concluding that he fits the profile of a ruthless killer who lived by the gun and got what he deserved. And naturally, that's really disappointing. We'd all, if we got amnesia, we'd like to believe that when we rediscovered ourselves, we were great people, not hardened killers. But there is more to Bourne than a rap sheet. Our guy is getting it confused. Though he learned several accurate things about his past, he's made a drastic miscalculation in assuming that it all adds up to one cohesive self-portrait. In truth, this spy had several different identities throughout his 30 years of life. And yes, while he may have spent the last three living under the alias of Jason Bourne, hired assassin, there are other aspects to him. There is the time when he was a peaceful married family man stationed in Cambodia. There was a time when he was a cold-blooded mercenary working during the Vietnam War. And there is him now as a do-gooder who wants to atone for any wrongdoing that he's done. I'm loath to spoil things about our mystery protagonist, because I do believe that the fun of this novel is watching the identity unfold through each chapter. You know, as we learn more and more, finding out who he is is what makes this book appealing. And I presume many listeners have not read the book, and I'd like to preserve some of Ledlam's secrets. I promise to go through more plot nuances next week. We can get into the details that I'm going to skim over here now. But it is impossible to address my feelings about Born Identity without focusing on a few details and spoiling a few surprises. I've already mentioned that our amnesiac is really named David Webb. He once knew a guy named Jason Bourne, and Jason Bourne is dead. But now the CIA and Webb perpetuate the myth that Jason Bourne is still alive, and they are, in collaboration, creating the false identity that he is a badass Asia-based hitman who has moved operations to Europe. And that's why Webb even got shot on that boat, was that he was mistaken for Bourne, and that was an enemy of Bourne that wanted to take him out. Now, I find it hard to believe that anyone, even the CIA, who is certainly capable of massive cover-ups, could get away with perpetuating such a flimsy lie for so long. Let's look at this. The world quakes in fear about Jason Bourne killing political leaders, mob bosses, tyrants, when in fact no such person exists and every murder attributed to him was committed by some random vigilante or terrorist cell who basically got away with it, who was basically not prosecuted for their crimes. It was all pinned on Jason Bourne, and so they get away scot-free. Ludlam would have you believe that David Webb just gets a tip that, hey, some mayor in a Chinese town got felled by a bullet. He's going to go hop on a plane, race to the scene of the crime, write Jason Bourne in blood on a piece of cloth and drop it next to the body, and that is enough to perpetuate his reputation as the best hired gun in Asia, while whoever really killed that mayor in the Chinese town just gets away with it. Not only is that preposterous, it undermines David Webb's cachet as a badass spy. I mean, imagine if some Bond book revealed that 007 never pulled a trigger on anyone, he just took selfies with cadavers you know, drank martinis. That would not fly. We would not think of him as the lethal, seductive spy that we do. 
And while I understand that Ludlam wants us to perceive Webb as a morally upstanding man of principle, I just feel like he doesn't trust us to think of his other identity, the Jason Bourne identity, as having more shades of gray. He wants to have it both ways, that Webb is the most dangerous man alive and a pacifist who has never hurt anyone, who has never committed to sin. It might have played better if Webb as an amnesiac was really a wimp, that he had no fighting skills, and that all these enemies assumed he was Jason Bourne, super killer, and forced him into these physical confrontations that he couldn't win. And so he would have to figure out his way out of situations based on his wit and not based on any kind of latent martial arts superpowers. It would turn this into the story of a phony who has to live up to an impossible reputation. And that could be fun to read. But no, Webb was trained in every deadly art of assassination, and he still knows how to do it. And he can do it on command when he's attacked here as he's trying to find his identity. But we're also expected to believe that the CIA, while training him in all of these arts, never asked him to use those skills on the job. Furthermore, if Jason Bourne is not supposed to be a recognizable person, why assign one guy to fake all of these crimes? Wouldn't it be better to have a team of people planning evidence when that make it easier to masquerade Jason Bourne as a phantom rather than having some poor soul fly around the globe photobombing crime scenes and then trying to slip away unrecognized? We'll even learn that the CIA surgically had Webb's face altered to increase the chances that he'll be unremarkable looking. As the doctor who patched him up points out, quote, you're the prototypical white Anglo-Saxon person we see every day on the better cricket fields and tennis courts. Those faces that become almost indistinguishable from one another. The features properly in place, the teeth straight, the ears fall against the head, Nothing out of balance, everything in position, and just a little bit soft. Incidentally, that's exactly how I described James Marsden, who played Cyclops in the X-Men movies. That is who I had in my head and not Matt Damon as I read this story. But again, we are to believe that the CIA went to the trouble of rearranging David Webb's face so that he would look as ordinary as any other wasp. That there's basically a way that you can look so generic that no one will ever pay attention to you, even as you are appearing at a crime scene. The bottom line, Robert Ludlum wants to tell the story of an amnesiac who feels he's a horrible person, but to his and our great relief, discovers that he never committed a sin. And while that is an unpredictable outcome. I think it's the opposite of the story we usually get, which is a redemption story, the story of someone who has done horrible things in the past and wants to atone. I also think it just makes our super spy way too vanilla. I really only go with it because I get swept up in the circumstances that are swirling around Webb. And at 600 pages, The Born Identity is a very densely plotted novel. It's full of strange tangents, dozens of colorful characters, more than a few red herrings. It's not really easy to follow. I, I think it, it you can often lose the plot amid all this intrigue. And I almost think that's advisable. I mean, I almost recommend that you get a little amnesia and not pay too close attention because this book really doesn't stand up to intense scrutiny. 
David Webb is really not a believable or cohesive character. Even though they go to great lengths to explain all the different phases of his life, it is hard to believe that he is one person. But I do love the irony of his situation, and that is that he spent all this time developing this myth, Jason Bourne, uh, who was never real, who started life as fiction, but by the end of it has become real. He is flesh and blood, because as a confused amnesiac detective, Webb is just going to keep digging into the past and pulling on these legendary skills and becoming a man he never was. I'll reveal one more secret here, because I also need to be able to talk about the villain of the Bourne identity. We eventually learn that the whole reason the CIA and Webb created this elaborate Jason Bourne ruse was so that they could provoke Illich Ramirez Sanchez, better known as Carlos the Jackal, to come out of hiding. Now, perhaps the name doesn't mean much to modern readers, given that Sanchez was captured in 1994 and is currently a 66-year-old man serving two life sentences in a French prison. But back in the 70s, Carlos was one of the most feared terrorists around. And if you were reading The Born Identity back when it was first published, his name would strike fear in your heart. He is more than just some generic spy novel boogeyman. He is someone ripped from the headlines. Which is why we get headlines in the preface. Ludlum actually chooses to include two newspaper excerpts which chronicle the July 11th, 1975 shootout that Carlos had with two French policemen who, aided by a Lebanese informer, had come to apprehend him in his Paris French Quarter hideout. And Carlos gets away. He shot those men dead. And that is the crime that really convicts him 20 years later. He spent decades as a wanted man, and when he was caught and put on trial, he is serving time because he killed those two French lawmen. It's what also earned him the reputation the Jackal, because when cops came to scope out the apartment in this Latin quarter, Carlos appears to have been reading Frederick Forsyth's novel, The Day of the Jackal. He left a copy of that book lying around with his personal items, and the newspaper people, the media, focused on that. They found it ironic and gave him the nickname The Jackal, and it stuck. And here's where I realized that I really didn't know fact from fiction when it came to the historical Carlos the Jackal. I'd heard that name repeated throughout my childhood, I'm sure, in the news. Eventually, I did see the 1973 movie adaptation of Day of the Jackal, and I walked away from that believing that it told the true story of Carlos the Jackal trying to assassinate French President Charles de Gaulle. Uh, not even close, as it turns out. Day of the Jackal is a work of fiction, entirely. Many people did try to shoot de Gaulle when he was in office, but nobody that attempted that was named the Jackal, and certainly not Carlos the Jackal, who was much more entrenched in the battles between Israel and Palestine. That was where he fought his fight. He was political, really, a revolutionary. And that makes him a pretty good foil for Jason Bourne, who, like him, has a reputation for killing a lot of people that he actually did not kill. Carlos is infamous. His reputation would have you believe that he's done many things that the historical truth proves false. He went up the river for killing two people, but what people think of Carlos doing is 
is murdering hundreds. And Ludlum exploits that. I mean, he would have you believe, he puts in this novel, implies that Carlos was one of the shooters on the grassy knoll when Kennedy was assassinated. Never mind the fact that the real Carlos was a teenager in Argentina in 1963. And I imagine it's easy to be fooled. You know, back when this was first published, readers couldn't do a Google search on the guy. They would have known his reputation. He has a scary nickname. If somebody's telling him that he committed all of these world crimes, apocryphal stories, you might believe these bloody deeds were all attributable to one Carlos the Jackal. And that is the character that Ludlum wants to portray, the all-powerful puppet master who mobilizes hundreds to do his bidding, who hides in the church, cackling about his next evil deed. You know, he does all of this. He targets Jason Bourne because he wants the world to think of himself as the best marksman in the world, and Jason Bourne is ruining his reputation, that it's really a professional beef that they're having with each other. You're moving in into my European turf and taking away my clients. I want to be the go-to when people want to hire, if you wanted to kill Charles de Gaulle, call Carlos, don't call Jason Bourne. And so I'm going to kill Jason Bourne so that I remain in that privileged position. Maybe that's a fun character to follow. I think it works for this book. But it is an outlandish exaggeration of the real Carlos the Jackal that feeds off misinformation and melodrama rather than reputable reporting. Again, Ludham was not a journalist. He was a ham actor, and he likes his villains to twirl their mustaches. And I think that is disappointing. I mean, I gotta say, considering that he's so willing to deflate expectations that Jason Bourne is a killer or has done anything morally questionable... He's perfectly fine making his foil come off as a heartless butcher in all cases. At no point does this Carlos the Jackal on the page feel like a human being. He is a Bond villain. It's way too black and white. And sometimes it's just patently ridiculous. I mean, in those same newspaper articles about Carlos the Jackal I mentioned in the preface, they mentioned the fact that he is a, quote, jet age assassin, end quote, who was spotted a few days earlier in London looking, quote, fashionably dressed. Well, Ludlum takes that concept of fashionable dressed and runs with it, because when Webb finally catches up with Carlos in Paris, we're expected to believe that Carlos is getting by by impersonating René Bergeron, a successful fashion designer with his own boutique. Like, he's just as good with a sewing machine as he is with a machine gun. He's Calvin Klein with an Uzi. He's Halston with a hand grenade. I mean, even without Wikipedia to reference, you have to believe that readers in 1980 might have cocked an eyebrow at this. I mean, the idea that the Jackal runs a clothing empire as well as a hitman service is just too Zoolander for me. And it goes on for 100 pages. This book has several tangents where it just strains credibility and just goes down a bad path. In general, I think it could have benefited greatly from having a better editor. I don't even blame Ludlum. I just feel like Ludlum writes a lot, and it would be best to have a second pair of eyes come and dial back his excesses. I mean, I generally agree with the consensus that the Bourne identity is breezy fun, that it's a chase that you'll want to be a part of, 
but it goes on twice as long as it should. And it really does take a turn every now and then where, again, I mean, Carlos the Jackal as killer fashion designer is just unacceptable. I have to keep reminding myself that this was written in the age of the airport novel, that readers really were looking to pass the time on long business trips. You know, you got a 12-hour international flight ahead of you, you're standing in the bookstore at the airport, you want to grab something that isn't going to challenge you, but is going to be long, that is going to be fast food literature, that is involving and plays off your romantic notions of travel and world events. You don't have an iPhone. You can't check your email. The in-flight movie might suck. So really, it's going to be your primary entertainment as you're a habitual traveler jetting around the U.S. and the world. You, you would treat it as your main source of entertainment and escapism. And judged as fast food literature, I think it more or less does the trick. I, like Jason Bourne himself, think the Bourne identity is way overrated. Its reputation is way overblown, probably because of opinions about the movie. It has a great gimmick. I love the notion that a spy has lost his identity and must construct who he is through the several people that he's played over his life. It catches you up in some fun situations. I like going to Switzerland and Paris and New York. But ultimately, the central character is unbelievable, and his villain even more so. I also don't see a real James Bond potential in this, and I'm not sure Ludlum did either. I don't think that this was intended as the kickoff to a book series. I think it was a standalone adventure. I think that the destinies of Webb and Bourne and Carlos collide in the climax in a way that while they could continue, and they will continue, and I will discuss that continuation, I also feel like it comes to a pretty satisfying end and conclusive end. And so I think that Ludham was done with this when it was published in 1980. So what changed his mind six years later to publish The Born Supremacy? I'll consider that next week. We've still got two more shows to do. And of course, I have skipped over several major aspects of this book. Webb's hostage and eventual love interest Marie, the shadow organization Treadstone 71, as well as Medusa that appear to be stalking every move of Webb. There's a fateful mission behind enemy lines in North Vietnam that is going to come back to haunt the guy. All of these elements will play out over the course of all three novels. And so I feel like there is time to discuss this after a majority of my listeners have either read the book or said by listening to the sequels that they don't care to read the book and go ahead and spoil it for me. So that is what the next two podcasts will do. We will spoil the Born Identity and reveal all its secrets next week. I'm biting my tongue on all of these things I have not discussed in greater detail. All you really need to know for now is that I give this book a cautious endorsement. I think enough about it works as entertainment that if you have the right attitude, it's going to please you. And I can see why Hollywood would be interested in adapting it. It has the potential to be a really good streamlined movie, a better movie than this messy, grandiose novel. Did they make that movie? Again, I invite you over to nowplayingpodcast.com and find out my thoughts on that film. You can do that while you wait. It's going to take me a week, but I will be back next week 
for Born Supremacy, the 1986 sequel that will take Jason Bourne and David Webb into exciting new locales. Thanks so much for listening. I'll talk to you then. Thank you for listening to this episode of Books and Nachos. You can also find many more book reviews at our website, booksandnachos.com. If you enjoyed this podcast, please help spread the word about our podcast by leaving us a five-star review on iTunes. Books and Nachos is a crowdsourced podcast with no sponsors or ads. You can support our show by pledging to our Podbean campaign at booksandnachos.com support. The music for Books and Nachos is The Right Prescription by Chai Weapon, provided by podsafeaudio.com. Books and Nachos is a Venganza Media production, copyright 2016, all rights reserved, and no part of the show may be reproduced, repurposed, or redistributed without the written permission of Venganza Media Incorporated.